You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. And if this is your first time listening, we divide our podcast up into three sections. The first section, uh, we read a section of scripture, whether it's a chapter or several chapters. Uh, But we'll read a section and then we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about some more technical uh, things in the text, whether it be history or language or anything that we need to dive deeper into to further explain. Uh, And then in the last section, we apply. And that's where we take some lessons from what we have read and we uh, use that in our Christian life today. And hopefully that benefits somebody out there listening. And I'm Andrew Kingsley. We have Drew Kaiser as well. And today we're really excited because we have (laughs) world-renowned World famous author, preacher, holder of multiple degrees, Mr. Chuck Webster. The man that has all the answers. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. <laughs> he sounds so excited. He didn't <laughs> He's do thrilled. It. Nobody saw it, but he did a couple of fist pumps. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I am is, glad to be here. Yeah. I well, don't have all the should answers. Should have videoed this today. Well, we're we're <laughs> really honored that, that you're joining us and I know everybody that has been listening to us will enjoy the break. I'm just hearing me and Andrew all the time. But uh, let's start with our reading, and we've been moving through Jeremiah as chronologically as possible. That's a real challenge. It's caused us to bounce all over the book, but it's the only way we could think of to um, get some kind of an outline. I don't know if you've ever tried to outline Jeremiah, Chuck, but it is a real challenge. And I'm not saying we accomplished that, but... What we did is we tried to find the narrative, and then we hung some of the more interesting or more helpful, practical, important prophecies in certain places in that narrative, but we're trying to tell the story and uh, then get the teaching in there as well. Of course, the main message is repent or God's going to destroy Jerusalem, the temple, take you captive for 70 years, and then he's going to destroy all the other nations for their sins as well. And uh, that we see that repeated over and over again. And we've been in Jehoiakim's reign. Last episode, right. Jehoiakim would not listen to Jeremiah's teaching that was on the scroll read by Beirut. He cut off pieces of it, threw it in the fire pot of his winter palace. This episode, which is going to just be, everybody will be glad to hear this, one chapter, Jeremiah 35... <laughs> Uh, this this episode is going to be dated, we think, near the end of Jehoiakim's reign. We don't know that for sure, but this seems to be characteristic of the end of his reign during his pro-Egyptian phase. You know, he was put in there by the Babylonians as, you know, he's supposed to be the Nebuchadnezzar's puppet there in Judea, and uh, he decided to rebel, quit paying tribute, form a coalition with the what's left of Assyria, and Egypt, which was the only strong player in the area, and try to make a move for independence or just, you know, an alliance with Egypt. It's during that phase where he really ought to be looking over his shoulder for Nebuchadnezzar, and he's not listening to Jeremiah or wisdom or God, ultimately. And this is taking place during that time frame, and it introduces us to a group of people called the Rechabites. And Jeremiah has a meeting with them, And what we're looking at here could be described as a living parable. It's a little story. It could have been in our episode on Jeremiah's object lessons because it's kind of a big object lesson. 
it's not really about the Rechabites, I guess is what I'm saying, but they're going to be used as an example uh, or a contrast yeah. to God's people. It'll be a the first positive example I think we have seen so far yes. in our study of Jeremiah, because everything has been negative or used to show the faults of Judah and Israel. But here, we're finally getting something that is, you know, something good that shows, and like you said, the contrast shows how bad, how far yeah. Israel's fallen. Yeah, I was going to say, it's only positive because it is a contrast. Right. Um, which is very sad. But um, anyway, uh, let's start with the command that God gives Jeremiah in verse 2. He says to Jeremiah, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers then offer them wine to drink. Uh, now, uh, we'll talk more about what's going on here, but House of the Rechabites is more in terms of the household of the Rechabites, because as we're going to learn, this is a nomadic people. And these chambers were built by Solomon. You know, the tabernacle was very simple, but if you studied Solomon's temple, which is the one that we're talking about here, um, there are all these three-story chambers that were added on on the on either side of the holy place, and prominent priests and prophets would use them as their residences or their office. Right. Uh, several people are mentioned here who owned these, and he brought them into the chamber. Verse four says of of one uh, of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which must have meant that Jeremiah respected his teaching, and so uh, there were these little places. And he chose one for a meeting place. And that's that's all that's about. In verse 5, uh, Jeremiah sets before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will do no wine, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. So you have here this interchange, and we learn a lot about the Rechabites. Their father, they call him, and they're really about 200 years, or um, uh, I forget, maybe, yeah, a couple hundred years removed from this Jonadab. But he had come up with this idea that they would remain nomadic. And they had done that all of their life by not planting vineyards and drinking wine. And uh, we'll talk more about what what's behind that command, I think, in the next section. Uh, this, there'll be a good discussion about that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to point out that verse 11 is an illustration of the wisdom behind that command. Because they were living up in the northern territory, it seems like, and Nebuchadnezzar came down into that and they were able to pick up stakes, literally. They were able to get their tents and move into Jerusalem. And we assume because they lived in tents that they may have been outside the walls of Jerusalem, not in houses, but they had 
been able to get out of Nebuchadnezzar's way and so survive as a group of people. They were not technically Israelites. They were distant relatives of the Israelites, and but they were living among them at this time. So that's the meeting that Jeremiah has with the Rechabites, the living parable. And now we're going to get to the point of it, the moral of the story, if you want to look at it that way, in verses 13 and 14. And these are the key verses of the chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab the son of Rechab gave to to his sons, to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. So you see what's going on here. And then in verse 15, Jeremiah gives a quick five-point sermon. Um, he, he, and it's a sermon we've heard over and over again, but in this one verse you've got five points. So number one, I have sent to you all my servants the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, uh, number two, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. I, I ruined this. I'm reading out of a different Bible than I studied this in, which is never good because I made all these notes in my, in my um, Bible and I messed up my points. Uh, let me do this again. Verse 15, here are the points. I've sent you all my servants and prophets, sending them again and again, saying, okay, here's the sermon. Number one, turn now every man from his evil ways. Number two, amend your deeds. Number three, do not go after other gods to worship them. Number four, then you shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and your forefathers. And number five, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Not that adding the points to that made that any clearer, but I said it, so I had to figure out how I had worked that out yesterday. Uh, so you get the moral of the story there. They're a contrast to the Israelites. The Rechabites were obedient to their father, Jonadab. The Israelites, or rather the Jews, uh, the people of Judah, were disobedient to their father, their heavenly father, God in heaven. And then the consequences of their actions is also another stark contrast. Yeah. The consequences of the actions of Judah. Exactly, because you see a reward here for the Rechabites in verses 18 and 19, which is a contrast, like you said, to what was going to happen to the Jews. Uh, The house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall never lack a man to stand before me. It's kind of a general reward. I don't know. What, what does that mean to you guys? To me, it just means they're going to be established, secure, maybe. Yeah. But, you know, nothing specific, but still in a lot better shape than than God's people. Yeah, almost right. like they're going to escape some of the punishment that's coming to everybody else. You know, maybe everybody right. else is going to be punished. But these guys, now they're never going to lack a man that's going to stand before me. So we come across a term in the 
the second verse of this chapter that probably not a lot of us are familiar with. I was not until, um, Drew, you came up with your outline of Jeremiah. Um, it's a new word. Maybe it sounds a little intimidating at the front end. I thought it was going to be some kind of special type of literature or something. Hmm. wasn't even thinking about being a certain type of people. But this Oh, when is, you saw it on the outline. Yeah. Yeah. In the context yeah. of the outline, I'm thinking, oh man, i got to learn this whole new type of prophecy literature. Mm-hmm. But it's a group of people. Their history is very interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff to talk about. We see that they're descendants of a guy named Jonadab. That's who they say uh, that one of their fathers is. He's also called Jehonadab that we'll see here in a little bit yeah. from Second Kings chapter 10. So if you want to, you can go ahead and flip over and put your finger there, Second uh, Kings chapter 10. Uh, but backing up before that a little bit, you can see in First Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 55, we have um, this man mentioned as a Kenite. Kenites were, like you mentioned earlier, they weren't originally Israelites, but they were closely related. Uh, Kenites had been around Canaan as early as Abraham. And as a matter of fact, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a Kenite. And these particular Kenites, this group, would have come out of Egypt with Israel. And so we kind of keep that in the back of our mind. And here you get to Second Kings chapter 10 where we have Jehu, who's kind of on a mission. They to, went out, did you mention, they went out in the Exodus, they joined Israel in the Exodus from Egypt. Right, yeah, they would have come out with Israel so from they Egypt. So they mm-hmm. stayed with them, kind of as their own separate community, it's my understanding, that whole time. Right, and this would have given them some time to build a reputation among the people. People knew who they were. So probably Rechabites is a term that a lot of Hebrews, a lot of Israelites would have been familiar with sometime after the, uh, well, even before, but definitely after the Exodus. And there's a little bit of evidence of that here in 2 Kings 10. By the time we get down to verse 15, we're talking about Jehu wiping out the relatives of Ahab. And he's kind of given that mission uh, from God, actually. In 2 Kings chapter 9, if you back up, Elisha goes and he meets with Jehu and he tells him uh, that he is going to be the king. This is starting in verse 6. He arose and went into the house, talking about Elisha. He arose and went into the house and the young man poured the oil on his head, uh, the head there being of Jehu, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master. So this is what Jehu's mission is uh, for the next, I guess, chapter and a half or so. He's going around wiping out Ahab's family. And then we get here to verse 15 of chapter 10. And it's a really, really short, kind of weird scene yeah, that we yeah. read here. It's kind of cinematic. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And we kind of wonder why on earth is this here. But here's what it is, starting in verse 10 of Second Kings, or excuse me, Verse 15 of 2 Kings 10. When he departed from there, he met Jehonadab. This is the same guy that is Jonadab, uh, where we're reading today in Jeremiah. He met Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand. 
And Jehu took him up with him into the chariot, and he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained in Ahab in, to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken to Elijah. So, you know, those who have studied the Old Testament a whole lot know Jehu's reputation for being bloodthirsty. Now, you mentioned that God gave him the commission to go out and, and you know, wipe out Ahab's family because Ahab was a terrible influence on Israel. Right. And we've always, I've always had the picture in mind of Jehu going out and doing this solo, but Jonadab, or jo, as he's called here, Jehonadab, the father of these Rechabites, he was hand in hand with this guy, with right. Jehu. They together. Chair. And probably they had, you know, their armies with them. But they were, he was co-captain, or however you want to look at it, in the slaughter of the prophets of Baal and uh, a lot of bad people. But then, you know, we know, I've always been confused about Jehu, and I don't want to get off on Jehu too long, because we'll do 1st and 2nd Kings eventually. But I've always been confused. I do know that Jehu was not complete in his reforms um, and at the end of his reign he is going he's called a wicked king right and is going to be punished for his wrongs and some of his wrongs are listed in terms of his violence but as you said when he was anointed he was anointed to uh, wipe out Ahab's family mm-hmm. um, that that's you know kind of a tangent that we don't need to get on. Right. But it kind of sets a scene for this father. Now, we're talking about a couple hundred years before Jeremiah's time. Uh, but these sons of his have followed in his footsteps. I'm talking about Jonadab. Right. Have followed in his footsteps ever since that time that he joined hands with Jehu and was a part of a cleansing that occurred in Israel. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he set them... And we read in verses 6 through 10 of our chapter for today, 35 in Jeremiah, we read some of the, I guess, traditions, for lack of a better word, that he had them keep, some commands he gave them not to drink wine, not to build houses, not to plant anything, um, not to live in a house, obviously, if they're not going to build a house. So some very interesting things and kind of what we started to discuss before we hit record on this Uh, section is why he would have given them those traditions to keep you know why can't they plant anything why can't they live in the house why should they not be drinking wine what exactly do you think it is that is behind all these sort of odd commands you know because the rest of israel's not given commands don't live in houses don't plant anything you know they're all given as a matter of fact jeremiah we already read goes to buy a field uh, obviously, for later on to use it to plow, to plant, mm-hmm. to be beneficial. Talking about the you know redemption that will eventually come after this um, captivity to Babylon. But why is it the that main, these? Well, the main part of it is the alcohol, right? I mean, the the you mentioned all the association associations with the tradition passed on by Jonadab, but the main thing was. Don't drink wine. And he put a picture, Jeremiah puts a picture of wine in front of them. That's what our eye is drawn to. Mm-hmm. And so 
and I have seen, Chuck, you may have seen this, I've seen sermon outlines on this portion of Scripture that are sermons against drinking, you know, uh, about the Rechabites. And I've, you know, I've heard a sermon or two, of, you know, we shouldn't drink because the Rechabites didn't drink. You know, so what what is behind this command? Uh, is it about, is what are we doing to the text when we take this as a text on alcohol? Well, this, this wasn't... This wasn't a command that was given to the Jews as a whole people, right? I mean, yeah, that's just, it's a family thing. So, right? so this wasn't a prohibition against wine. Yeah, um, and I wonder if not only with the wine, but also the nomadic living that he'd commanded, if it had something to do with the corruption that Jonadab had seen in Israel at that time, and it had, you know, all that he saw. If he was, if he wanted his family to to live in in such a way so that they wouldn't get absorbed into that that kind of wickedness that he had seen associated with living like, in the city and, and and the wine and all. It reminds me of the Nazarites. Right. Similar thing. Yeah. They're kind of a holiness or a sanctity. Um, maybe it's part of this. Uh, I dug some stuff up. There is, you know, there's also, there are all these kind of, t- you know, wine was, um, and, you know, I'm really trying to stay away from, because I think other podcasts will cover this, and we've we've talked about this in other podcasts, so I'm not going to make this, I don't think this passage is about alcohol, so we're not going to really get into that today. We'll get into it other times. But if you want to, if you want to text against alcohol, go to Proverbs twenty verse one or Ephesians five eighteen. Talk about it from texts that talk about alcohol. This is not about the alcohol. Now, uh, wine, which maybe this is my conviction, the word wine can refer to non-alcoholic or alcoholic wine. The context doesn't tell you which is the case, but it was a it was a major beverage for people for a number of reasons. I mean, it was healthy. You know, there were nutrients in it. Water was bad, um, but there are all these because it was a major part of their life and a part you know sitting on their table all the time. All these connotations came along with wine, and one of them that I discovered is you know, and vineyards are mentioned here is. One of the connotations is that of a settled life. And I found all these um, interesting verses like uh, whenever Solomon brought prosperity to Israel. I found this in 1 Kings 4.25. It says, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Mm-hmm. I looked at that, you know, a grapevine or fig tree or one of those plants that the first year you plant it, you're not going to get anything off of it. And the second year, it's going to maybe flower out, but you won't get much fruit. And then finally, maybe year three, you really start seeing some stuff. Uh, I was trying to think of this line that a landscaper told me one time about ivy. The first year it sleeps, the second year it creeps, the third year it leaps. That's mm-hmm. what it is. So it may be a sleep, creep, leap situation here with v- vines. And that's what caused it. And there are a lot. I won't. I won't bore you with reading all the references to vineyards and fig trees. But it's kind of an idiom in the Hebrew language about you know if you've got a vineyard and a fig tree, you've been living there a long time. And it's anti-nomadic. It's like you know. So the way I read this is Jonadab is telling his sons, don't give in to the temptation to lead a settled lifestyle. 
to get your 40 acres mm-hmm. to to have you know a farm and a picket fence and all this stuff you stay in your tents you stay mobile and that's how you're going to what he promised is that is how you may live many days in the land where you sojourn it's about staying alive I think it's a survival technique it's the way I read it yeah I think there's there's a couple other options behind why they're doing these things and I think uh, something we touched on earlier for them to be set apart you know I think there might be a little more to this than their you know physical survival well that could be part of it and I think there might be a few other things that play into it for example um, Baal worship was you know that's what Ahab really made popular other kings had done it as well but Ahab we know is one of the worst for bringing that kind of stuff to Israel and the worship of Baal and Baal worship involved um, a few of these things and this might be too much of a stretch but you know they're they're asked not to plant anything period uh, whether it's a vineyard or whether it's a seed uh, just in general uh, verse 7 you shall not sow seed um, so pretty much any kind of seed they're not supposed to plant uh, Baal worship part of it uh, Baal was I guess considered to be the guy that sent the rain and so for farmers it was tempting yeah. for a lot of farmers to not pray to Baal if it wasn't raining and you put yourself in that kind of you know it sounds crazy to us now but if you put yourself in that context you're a farmer you worship Yahweh, the one true God. It's not raining. Your crops are dying. You pray to God that he will send rain, and no rain comes. For one month, two months, three months, however long it is, your crops are all dying. And then, you know, of people that have prayed, you hear all these stories of people that have prayed to Baal, and Baal has sent them rain. And so it's tempting for them not to pray uh, to Baal to get rain, and obviously that's idol worship there. Um, also, Worship of Baal involved drinking, in some cases it involved heavy drinking of wine. So it could be, you know, that they're, they are trying to be set apart. They are trying, and they were known, actually, uh, for being conservative Yahwists. I got that from one of your commentaries up there. Um, I think it was Robert Alter. He says the Rechabites were known for being conservative Yahwis. I didn't know Yahwis was a word, but that just <laughs> well, means... Well, if Alter says it, it's it's a word. Yeah, it's a word mind. now. Uh, but obviously that means, you know... I like his stuff. Very strictly uh, trying to follow Yahweh, and so it mm-hmm. wouldn't make sense for them to be avoiding even the appearance okay. of... You know, or even... Well, you know, I can go with that. And in that sense, it is kind of an anti-alcoholism move. But I just I don't want people to just simplify this chapter into well this is a proof text on not drinking. Oh right. You know? yeah. And I, I don't drink, you know, and I'm I don't want Christians to drink, but I don't want us to twist the scriptures and miss the big application which we will get to at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's another clue here also the reward that he promises uh Verse oh, I said it a minute ago. Where is it about the land may live long? Okay, verse seven, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. What does that sound like? It sounds like some other passages we've heard. Right, oh, your father and mother. Yeah, right, exactly. Command. This is a father telling his son, and he says, "If you obey me, you will live a long time in the land that God has given you." 
That's Exodus 20. That's Ephesians 6. I mean, that's Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, the promise, this the uh, Paul said that's the first commandment, honor your father and mother, obey your parents, is the first commandment that comes with the promise that mm-hmm. you may live long in the land. Uh, so this is what Jonadab told his sons. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's probably what it means at the end of the chapter when it says that um, there will always be someone from the Rechabites who will stand. Where does it say that? Yeah, very last. Yeah. yeah. Never lack a man to stand before me. I think that's probably the same thing that you're talking about there. Someone will always be, yeah, the same, the general promise. If you're obedient, you will live long in the earth. You will have someone who is serving God, standing before God. And they certainly survived. I, you know, these people lived, you, you were talking about the history there with Jehu. Jay, we didn't talk about the fact that that's during the divided kingdom. And he, and Jonadab was a northern kingdom guy. He was up. Right. He was up north. Well, by this time, Jeremiah's day. Where's the northern kingdom? It's gone. But the Rechabites are still there. Why? Because they followed their followed their father's advice. And when it got bad in in Israel, they moved down to Judah, and they weren't tied to land inheritance. They weren't tied to a particular tribe, and so mm-hmm. it probably broke their hearts to leave whatever area they were in. They followed after the. They were more like the patriarchs than the um, Israelites. You know, they were more in the in the right, yeah. vein of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than they were Moses and well, not Moses, but Joshua and uh, the people of you know David, Solomon, and and the divided kingdom era. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, let's tackle this. There's a really sticky theological issue going on here. And we see this kind of stuff a lot in the Old and New Testaments. And uh, that's what the 66 is all about. We're going to tackle the big hard questions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's why, that's why Chuck is here. Right. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> oh, boy. That's why you we know, call Chuck. So, uh, but, you know, I know a lot of people are wondering. The, you know, there are prohibitions against alcoholism in general. Pro- prohibitions against drinking. There are... You know, this this father's advice specifically is, I don't want you to drink wine. And mm-hmm. Jeremiah calls these sons, and, and they're, they're known. We're going to assume that Jeremiah knew and everybody knew yeah. that these are the guys that never touch wine. They don't even plant a grape seed in the soil. Mm-hmm. They're like Nazarites. And uh, Jeremiah calls them into a chamber of the house of the Lord and puts a pitcher of wine in front of them. And this prophet of God who has authority, who's respected, says, drink it. Now, is there an ethical problem here? Uh, did Jeremiah do something wrong? And the reason I jumped in to ask the question first is because if I ask a question that somebody else has to answer it. Um, is there an ethical issue here? Or what is, what is going on? You know, I think it goes back even... I think it makes the question even weightier when you consider why Jeremiah, he's commissioned by God to go, you know, God says, Jeremiah, take these people and offer them wine, pretty much, and see if they'll drink it. Okay, so it wasn't really Jeremiah. So that comes, makes it this even, makes it even, so you asked the second saying, question, so reflecting I don't have to, my question. Yeah, I'm just trying to so we got what? three guys in a real city, I have to ask a question, Andrew yeah. <laughs> question, so, well, uh, okay, yeah. Chuck. So what what's going on here? 
I guess the the background of that would be that we know that God does not tempt anyone with evil, right? James one, He doesn't yeah. tempt anyone with evil. So, but but then you've got passages like Genesis twenty two with Abraham and Isaac and God telling him to go up to the mountain mm-hmm. and offer him as a sacrifice, and yet it says I think King James says God, God did tempt Abraham. I think a other translations put test him. So there's a fine line, it seems to me, between testing and tempting. God certainly put people in situations to test their faith with a view towards strengthening them. And it seems to me that that's what this would be. He put them in a situation knowing how they were going to respond, knowing their conviction, uh, to yeah. use it as an object lesson of this is an example of faithfulness and sticking to your convictions, uh, of testing and strengthening their faith and using them as a you know an object lesson for the people. Yeah. But you know, the Lord said, um, uh, how, did, how exactly does it start in Luke 17? Um, you know, woe to those who fall to temptation, oh, but yeah. woe to those through whom the temptation comes. It'd be better for them to have a right. stone tied around their neck thrown to the sea than to cause somebody to stumble. And yeah, uh, so true. Jeremiah, I mean, could we look here and say that he's, Casting a stumbling block out, and and they, they were able to avoid it. They passed the test. But should we be doing this kind of thing? Is this the equivalent of going into like to an alcoholic and saying, "I'm I'm going to see if you're really serious about this. Here's a beer," you know? And and I, I don't I don't really think so. I think yeah. You know here I think what you said is exactly right. You said something a minute ago, Chuck. That um. The Lord knew how they were going to react. He knew how Abra- He knew what Abraham was going to do, and he knew the end of the story. He knew what he was going to do, and here, I think Jeremiah even was in the know. Here, these Rechabites were not going to drink this wine. I mean, they had made it two hundred years. How are they going to fall? I mean, this is such an obvious thing. He's putting a pitcher of wine. Drink this wine. They're in the temple. It's a very public thing. I think God and Jeremiah and pretty much everybody in Israel knew these guys were not going to drink that wine. And that was the right. whole point. This is a model of obedience. you know. So it wasn't a stumbling block because he wasn't putting the beer in front of the alcoholic. He's putting the beer in front of the teetotalers that hated, abhorred you know, any hint of wine or alcohol or even planting it right. in their... In their field, so I'm really glad know. we got the term teetotalers worked into our podcast yeah. today. That's a, that's still a relevant term, right? Yeah, it maybe a dinosaur. Out. Somebody asked me this morning, <laughs> dinosaur. <it's> a dinosaur." <laughs> no, I think, I'm not a think dinosaur. Right. Cecil May uses it. You're good. You're oh good boy, company. talked about teetotalers. He's one of our listeners. Yeah, no, I, I doubt it. <laughs> but I think you know that's the same answer reading earlier this morning about. You know that exact question because that was the first thing that struck me uh, when I read the chapter was, well, is this is he just blatantly tempting him, you know, or them, the whole group of them? But the answer I got from pretty much everything I read was God knew what these guys' reaction would be, uh, kind of like you know you said the the people that are known for avoiding this, and if you offer it to them, obviously they're going to say no, and then you have this great object lesson. Right, I mean, maybe that's a reason why we don't see these guys for 200 years. And they pop up out of nowhere. They pop up out of nowhere is, 
I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I mean, he didn't just choose anybody off the street. Right. He he got the, they they were a unique example of obedience, mm-hmm. and of how obedience leads to preservation. Uh, obedience of a father, and then you know God even says, "I'm your father, and you haven't listened to me, and I've sent my servants to you, and you didn't listen to them." And uh, you know He's trying to inspire the people, mm-hmm. and again we see this recurring. You said in the first um, episode on Jeremiah that there there are theological themes. In other words, mm-hmm. we're going to learn a lot about God's nature in yeah. this book. And man, I love what I'm learning about God in this book mm-hmm. because how many chances is he giving them each That's episode right. every episode he's begging them amend your ways turn from your ways I've been with you persistently asking you to turn from your ways and you will not incline your ear but now let me bring these guys in and I'm going to do this I'm going to do this demonstration for you now don't you see what they just did that's what I'm looking for and still the people don't listen. But what an amazing God, you know, who sticks with the people who've... You know, Chuck, we were talking, uh, was it last episode about the human sacrifice? I didn't realize that... Um, I missed that episode. Yes, well, that's okay. No, you know, no, no, we can catch I'm, up. I'm catching up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, I didn't realize that Baal worship involved human sacrifices. And probably, maybe originally child it didn't. Child sacrifices. But by this time, they were doing child sacrifices in Topheth. Um... Well, not by this time. This is after Josiah. But prior to Josiah, they were sacrificing in Topheth um, their children. And God's still begging them to come back to him. You know, it's, I know I wouldn't give somebody that chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd put them under the jail if it was in my, yeah. in my power to do it. I think it's interesting that he doesn't use like a priest here, you know. Yeah. And maybe this goes well, more into applying than think, but the priests were corrupt. Yeah, I mean, we've they, read that. They tried to from the get very Jeremiah beginning. killed already. Yeah, we remember. You know, I think it was in the first or second episode. Over and over again, he talks about how the priests, the officials, and the rulers. I think those were the three terms that were used. But something the people that should have been the ones where Jeremiah could have had them sit down and prove their obedience to God, and he could have said, "Everybody else, look at." Our priests, or the know. king? How about the king? Yeah, or the king as well. The king. The guy throwing the scroll in the fire. Yeah, we're I've, I've, we've given up on hope on the kings for yeah. a long time, I guess, from Solomon's day even. But you know, it's it's just odd and shows again. I feel like we say this every episode, but just how bad the folks in Judah were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, just how much evil they had, and it really. I guess I'm learning more and more. With every chapter that we do, uh, every episode that we do about, um, you know, how God said their evil knows no end. Um, yeah. We're seeing more and more insight into that as we go through the book. Yeah. Well, lots of people like to talk about with the Old Testament how harsh God was and how some of the things that he commanded or that he brought about were, were pretty rough. And they were rough, but... Some of those same folks don't observe how long-suffering he was, just bearing with these people for hundreds of years, generation after generation, giving them multiple chances to repent, and they were so obstinate, so yeah. hard-hearted. It's it's obvious to me, and I don't know why people say this. They say it's two different gods, 
I hear that a lot from people who are just not not even in the church. But how could anybody say it's two different gods? This is the God of the New Testament. This is the God who sent His Son to die for the sins of the world. Um, the long-suffering God of Second Peter three nine, same God. And Jeremiah has been refreshing on that. I I, I really approach this book with a lot of. I won't say reluctance, but I was worried it was going to be doom and gloom every week. And really, it is. It has been an encouraging book to me. Yeah, uh, it has. When I, the the view I have of God, and we've talked Chuck about how similar Jeremiah is to God, not in his morality, because obviously mm-hmm. he was human and he made mistakes, but his temperament. We call him the weeping prophet. And really, he's weeping because God's weeping all through this book. Right. And I think we're kind of unfair to the book to call it the book of the weeping prophet because it really is the book of the weeping God is what we're seeing here. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Let me, uh, let's stop right there. And um, uh, when we come back, we'll get real practical with the things that we've been learning. back to do a little practical application and and there's really one major point here we can develop it in a number of different ways but this is a chapter about obedience Uh, as much as a lot of teachers preachers would like to take this chapter and do a lesson on social drinking it's really you know the chapter is obviously about being obedient and you can talk about obedience in so many different ways one of the things that I notice are all of these great terms that are used in verses 13 through 16 to describe what obedience is. For example, in verse 13 you have this phrase, receive instruction. And um, the Hebrew equivalent to this is uh, the Greek paideia, which is um, used in Ephesians 6.4. Bring, bring them up in the, the King James says, nurture and admonition of the Lord. Discipline and instruction of the Lord, I think, is another term. But it's it's a word that can mean, it has a long range of things like discipline, chastisement, training, and exhortation. And, you know, I've talked about, you know, there's a fine line between abuse and punishment when it comes to uh, raising kids or abuse and discipline. And basically the line is um, instruction. You know, if, if, the, if it's designed to lead the child in a positive direction. Uh, you can do the same action, and in one case it's abuse, and in another case it's instru- it's uh, discipline. Like uh, you can put a kid in the corner and not tell him why he's sitting in the corner. And I think that's abusive to just, mm-hmm. you know, you know, say, go get in the corner just because you are tired of being a parent or something. But if you set him in the corner and you say, this is why you're in the corner, you need to quit hitting your sister you need to quit pestering her and pushing her buttons. I'm just repeating things that I say every single yeah, I was about day to say, this is very, my house. Very well polished here. <laughs> you know, that's discipline because and so when he says receive instruction, the word instruction here includes discipline. It's kind of a instruction that comes along that, that has correction packed into it, maybe a little pain, maybe a little yeah. punishment. Uh, the second word 
used four times over the course of verses 13 through 16 is the word listen. So obedience is also listening. Uh, one place it says that God spoke to them persistently. And uh, that adverb is translated in a number of interesting ways. In the New American Standard Version, it's again and again. I spoke to you again and again and you would not listen. And literally it is, I spoke to you rising up early. Like, I got whenever you get up early in the morning to do something, it's pretty important. Um, so he's like, I got up early in the morning to speak to you about this. I made it a priority to give you this uh, instruction, and you wouldn't listen. Um, obedience is also keeping or observing, verse 14. And the literal meaning behind that word is to stand up, raise up, establish, and endure. I was trying to make sense out of that. And I don't know what you guys think, but if, in, you know, when it's applied to obedience, the idea of standing up or just raising up or uh, enduring kind of suggests to me making it a lifestyle, um, mm -hmm. which kind of goes back to our discussion about whether or not Jeremiah was putting a stumbling block in front of these guys. These yeah. guys weren't at the beginning of a 12-step program. It was their lifestyle, it was their heritage, it was their identity, it was what they were known for, obeying the voice of their father, Jonadab, in avoiding, you know, wine. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, number four, the word obey, uh, it literally means hearing, understanding, accepting, you know, of course, obeying. And then the last phrase that I found in this section, uh, I believe it's in um, verse 15, the phrase, incline your ear. So that is not just a passive thing. It tells me that it's it's the difference between hearing and listening. You know, if you incline your ear, you're making an attempt to know the law so that you can obey it. And, I, you know, I find it interesting in our country, you can be held guilty of a crime even if you weren't aware of the law. You know, speed limit's an easy thing. I've been pulled over before. Sir, do you know how fast you were going? Honestly, I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. Well, that doesn't matter. I still get a ticket. Because it's my responsibility to incline my ear to the laws of this land and live by them. And it was their responsibility. You know, God put the law out there, but they had to make an attempt to know it. And they weren't even, you know, God was doing all this and going to all these lengths, sending them his people, his prophets, and they wouldn't even incline their ear in his direction. So just going over that list of five terms again, obedience is receiving instruction, listening, keeping it, obeying it, and inclining your ear. That's what God wants us to do with regard to his word, those five things, to obey him. Yeah, I want to add something to one of your points there on keeping and observing. You know, if we... We can understand the traditions of the Rechabites in some different ways, but if we look at it through the lens of, you know, trying to avoid idol worship, you know, uh, refusing to plant and to drink, uh, you know, for reasons that could be associated with Baal and maybe temptations to fall into Baal worship, I think it's a good lesson for us in, you know, trying to make sure that we are staying as far away from the appearance of evil as possible. Um, yeah. You know, we're taught in the New Testament to shun even the appearance of evil or to even look like we're doing something evil. Paul tells us many times, you know, whatever is good, honorable, pure, excellent, at the end of Philippians, you can read a list 
are the kind of things we're supposed to think about um, and to dwell on, and obviously that leaves out everything else. But I think the great links uh, to which the Rechabites went in order to, I guess, avoid some of the pitfalls of some things from their culture really can be a big lesson for us in avoiding some of the pitfalls of ours. You know, alcohol is one of them, uh, but that's just one on a list that's a mile long. You know, there's so many things that we, a lot of people ask questions about, well, can I do this? Can I do that? What about this? Um, All these different things, especially with teenagers, you know, uh, questions like we mentioned in the break, you know, how far is too far with a boyfriend or girlfriend? And there's always Mm -hmm. these questions of, you know, how close can we get? And if you're asking that question... You're already in trouble, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and these guys, so in their culture, if you wanted wine, you probably had to grow it and and not distill it. I don't think they did distillation in those days, but you had to, I, I'm not, I don't have a wine factory in my backyard, so I don't know how to make it, but they had to distill it and brew it. Help me out here. I don't, they had to make it, you yeah. know? And so they weren't like, you know, okay, we'll plant we'll plant the vineyard, we'll get the grapes. Well, we won't but drink once it. those grapes turn sour, let's throw them out. There's no way we're going to let those ferment. No way. Yeah. You know, they were like, no, you know what? We're not even going to plant a seed. Right. And I'm, that is the right attitude. And it wasn't a law, like Ch- Chuck mentioned, this wasn't a law for Israel. This is what their family decided to do. God, mm-hmm. God is not, you know, God gives us big laws and then we decide you know how are we going to follow them and the the question of well how close can i get without going to hell is yeah. the wrong way to start a life of obedience exactly and i think that answers questions even with you know a big thing in our culture now whether or not some people make it a big deal or not is entertainment tv shows movies that kind of stuff you know people will ask all the time i've had you know, I've had a lot of teenagers ask me if they can go see such and such a movie. You know, and they want you to make the decision for the for rating. Them. Yeah, for the rating. That and you has. know what they're doing when they ask you. They're just their saying, parents well, find out they can say, "Well, Andrew said it was okay." Oh yeah, right. Yeah, then their that's parents, why they're doing it. Their parents will call me. You talking about it? They, but yes, they I think, will. I think the idea is, you know, well, is this movie? What's going to be in the movie? You know, it has all these rated R. Uh, we're not going to go. No matter what, we're not going to rate it our film. I know growing up, for me, that's the way it always was. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's a small, you know, comparatively insignificant example uh, compared to what's going on here, but I think it's a, sim- a similar kind of thing. You know, you're taking yourself totally out of the situation. Uh, you're getting yourself as far away from it as possible. I remember... Uh, Somebody once told me, you know, the easiest way not to fall out of a tree is not to climb it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I think we could we could do a lot of good to learn from that and really distance ourselves from whatever kinds of things we might be questioning about or trying to maybe compromise, toe the line on. Like you said, if that's our attitude, then we've already we've already lost it. Yeah, and this is a this is something that parents have to wrestle with. Uh, you know, I know we with my kids. There are a lot of things that you try to guide them in this in a certain direction, and and there's not always going to be a a verse that says don't do this or do this. But we 
we're trying to train our, our kids like you like, like all of you are to respect God and and fear just fear sins hate sin enough to where it's not it's not about hey, I'm going to flirt with that I'm going to do that because it's not technically wrong there's not a verse against it specifically uh, but just yeah. to love God and shun the things that he hates yeah um, I, I like the way you put that to to you know start in a different place more along the lines of knowing how dangerous sin is instead of how tantalizing it is you know, I think we dwell on the wrong side of sin. Now, the New Testament doesn't deny that there is some fleeting pleasure of sin, but a hundred times over it says that it's something to be hated and feared and shunned because of its destructive nature. And I think, I, I like the way you put that, because, you know, we, we've got to come at it from that angle, which is God's angle. And the Rechabites here... We're looking at it that way. Jeremiah and God, we're looking at it that way. The unfortunate thing is the nation of Judah was not looking at it that way, and they were flirting with every form of sin imaginable. Um, right. I've got one more quick thing to add on to this. Just while you were talking, it reminded me of Paul and some of the things Paul did. Most specifically, uh, at one point in First Corinthians chapter 8, he says he's not even going to eat meat if it might make somebody stumble. And I think that's a you know another perfect example uh, to where a lot of folks have problems with eating meat that have been sacrificed to idols, and so Paul goes even a step further there. Like we're talking about not how close can we get, but how far away can we get? He says, "Well, if that's the case, I'm not going to eat meat." Period. You know that way there'll be no question of there's was that meat offered for this or that or the other. He says, "I'm just going to stay away from it altogether." Mm-hmm. I think that's just another you know another thing to show us the importance of making sure we're coming from that attitude of how can I best follow God, not how can I squeeze this in here and follow God. Go to heaven and, yeah, you know, uh, keep from getting burned in hell. Mm-hmm. You know, just squeak by. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, what else? Let's, let's wrap this up. Yeah, when, when you study the prophets, I and study the history of Israel, it's always good, I think, to come back to what does this teach us about Jesus and where do we find him there, when you study really any part of the Old Testament. And I'm sure you guys have done some of this, and we'll do some more of it in the future as you look at the prophets. But with with Israel, that, that whole story of Israel, uh, the Old Testament calls Israel God's son. Uh, Israel was God's son, very disobedient son, and as a result was wandered in the wilderness and God gave them the land, and then, you know, not too many, what, this is around, what, 600 or so? Around. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, there are going to be two more two more very bad situations in Jerusalem to their taken away to captivity for 70 years, and then mm-hmm. after 70 years, God brings them back. But with well, we see Jesus there as a, as a fulfillment of that in that he is the Son of God who did not rebel, he did not disobey. He, you may, you may remember in Matthew 2, when he was a baby, he went down to Egypt. They took him down to Egypt, and then uh, Matthew quotes Hosea on that. Out of Egypt have I called my son. There are just a lot of interesting parallels how God called Israel out of Egypt, gave them the land of Canaan, but they rebelled there, so he cast them out, and then he brought them back. Now, with Jesus, he went down to Egypt, 
God brought him out of Egypt, brought him to the land. Jesus was obedient where Israel was disobedient. But an interesting thing is that he still took upon him the banishment from God. He was punished by God. He he went to the cross and he took the punishment for sins he did not commit. He was the obedient son that Israel was not. And yeah. yet he took the punishment that Israel deserved. And yet, just like God brought them out of captivity, on the third day Jesus was raised up. God raised him up as the... Uh, and then there were a lot of prophets will talk about that. That was a fulfillment of that resurrection. Israel was dead in Babylon, and God raised them up and, and brought them back to, to life. And that's what God did for Jesus. Of course, how this, how this points to us is that's where we're saved. We're dead. We're in captivity. God brings us up out of Egypt and He saves us based on based on what Jesus did. So I love to see those parallels. They're pretty encouraging. Yeah, and if we don't find that parallel, we've totally missed the point of any book of the Bible and even the Old Testament. And you know, I I think that's a fitting end for this particular chapter. It was refreshing to cover one chapter. It's been a long time right. since we've been able to do that. So uh, again, you know, you can really help us out if you enjoy this program, uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review or a rating. Several of you are doing that. I noticed I checked it out today and got some new reviews on there and some new ratings. And we really appreciate that. We hopefully get in front of that Japanese um, podcast that pops up every time you search for a Z66 podcast. No, we're not. (laughs) But one of these days, we might might be. You can also check us out on the web at the66.net. The 66 is a number. Or give us some feedback at akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. And thanks, Chuck. We're going to have to have you back again sometime. Uh, appreciate you driving over. Thanks for having record me. With us. And, uh, enjoyed being here. Yep. All right. So next episode, we'll continue our studies of Jeremiah. Until then, we'll see you.